There is a tendency both by Americans and by foreigners to vastly underestimate American power. We also have to remember that Russia is a third world power, or third world country. Its GDP ranks somewhat below South, South Korea's. Right. Its per capita GDP makes it 86th in the world. The yeah. economy is not that of a great power. It's of a nice middle middle, middle class nation. So it's a very poor country. Okay. And it survives by selling raw materials like any third world country. Yeah. Not advanced industrial goods or anything like that. Natural gas. Yes. Okay. So we begin with the fact that this is a country that blew the chance to become industrialized after the fall of the Soviet Union. Okay. And basically is very poor, very tense. The Siberians of all people rise up constantly against the central government. Okay. So it's not a peaceful government. And the capital of the country has not at all influenceable by the government. It's owned by oligarchs, massive oligarchs who prefer to keep it outside the country which makes it very hard to develop. Mm. So the Russians at reputation as a great power grew from what they were during the Cold War. Now, no, they're not. And we're thinking that. In the meantime, mm. the underestimation of American power is always breathtaking. We're the largest economy in the world. We control two oceans. We have the largest Navy, the most powerful Air Force and Space Force. And in the United States, we love to tear ourselves down. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean tear, tear ourselves down? What do you mean by that? Well, number one, all Americans hate the government. Whichever is the president, somebody's going hate them. Yes. Second, he's stupid and a fool, right? Sure. Third, uh, we are lost our history. We were great, but we've lost our greatness and no longer powerful. And we go through this very common headline. Yeah. yeah it's, it's our life. Yeah. This is America. We complain. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's like a Jewish mother. She doesn't leave me alone. <laughs> okay. But in the midst of that, Putin lost the point. He saw unrest in America and he assumed it was like what unrest would be in Russia. Okay. Okay. Meant very different things. Sure. Yeah. Didn't affect our military, our capital structure, anything else. It was just a party we're throwing. And so he did not understand what power the U.S. could bring to bear. One of it was NATO. We unified NATO. He's facing NATO now. And the other, uh, the dollar crushed him. You, a dollar is the currency of international trade. You can't get any, any you don't get to play. Yeah. And so his problem is the least of his problems is Ukraine. His problem is that he's been hit staggering blow after staggering blow by the United States, who has a massive coalition. Interestingly, just to go on next, the Chinese reached out to the Canadians today with a suggestion that Canada and, and China should cooperate greatly. And it's very important that we understand on Taiwan, all the things they want to hear. They're not going to come to the Americans to say that. They'll come to the Canadians. Interesting. So they reached out. Well, they made it the worst bet in human history. They bet that they could have an alliance with Russia that would counterbalance the United States. 
Yes. They misread Russia. They didn't know, I think, that Putin was going to go into this war. And now they're sitting there and they've just had a lesson in what American sanctions look like. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that tutorial is delivered and they're reaching out through the Canadians. There are two ways to look at it. First, any war costs. This is an economic war and it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us inflation, things like that. The job of the president at this point is to explain why these sacrifices are necessary. There's no war without sacrifice. Sure. Virtually, not many Americans are getting killed in this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or Canadians. Mm. But that's for, second. China is in the middle of a massive economic crisis. It's great growth spurt. The situation is very much like this. Capitalism always have a extremely low priced, low wage exporter. In the early 20th century, it was the United States. One half of all manufactured goods were manufactured in the United States. It culminates in the Great Depression, 40 years after it starts. Right. Japan does the same thing in 1950. It's the low cost producer. Made in Japan was, when I was a kid, a joke. Um, and they wind up in a financial crisis and an export crisis. Okay. And it takes what's called the lost generation, which I don't understand why it was lost, but all right, they restructure themselves and they're now this. China's boom began exactly 40 years ago and has had a remarkable growth, not greater than the United States or Japan, just the normal growth you get. And it started at a lower point, so it looks better. And it moved from low cost products to high-tech products. In a low-cost market, it could dominate. Playing with the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Germans, and the Americans, I mean, you're in a different league. Yes. And they were doing the same model that they did for low-cost, cost cuts. The, the major thing was it was cheaper to buy Chinese technology. Sure. Okay, they had nothing else. Well, you've got investment going and the rate of return on investment is not coming in at the level you want. So now what you see in the biggest sector of their economy, um, real estate, that yeah, the biggest yeah. company of all is defaulting. And so are a whole bunch of other companies. The net effect of these defaults are so huge, they're going to go through the entire economy. We had it. The Japanese had it. Standard behavior. But I'd written that you know, China was heading toward this because it was simultaneously low-balling exports and depending on its potentially worst enemy, the United States, to be its largest customer, okay, and also trying to enter the high-tech market based on the low-price model. Mm. That's hard to do in high-tech because high-tech is expensive and you've got to have that return on capital and I get it. So right now, the Chinese are staggering economically. World Bank has reduced expectations on growth. Their growth rate may be five and a half percent compared to the numbers you used to see. It's not anywhere yeah. near that. And most important, the West, the coastal part of the country is well-to-do. The rest of the country is incredibly impoverished. 
Right. Right. And this is where Mao Zedong took the long march where he raised the peasant army to do it. Their biggest fear is that sort of thing. And now they're imp imposing incredible security on the country. Incredible arrests going on that we don't understand and stuff like that. Sure. So China <clears throat> allied with Russia because it was looking for Russian help. It was not expecting to have to help Russia. Right. Russia allied with them because they were expecting Chinese help. Hmm. So this was one of those misguided alliances. Now Russia has become somewhat of a hot potato. Russia doesn't or China doesn't want to be nearly as involved as they were. Well, China looks at the cauldron that Russia is swimming in financially. Yeah. And it suddenly hits it that it's been playing with fire. Right. Right. It's backing off, which is why that meeting in Chicago in uh, Canada was so important. Can you add some context to that meeting for me, George? I wasn't aware. I'm very curious about what you're talking about. The Chinese approach to Canadians who've had their problems with the Chinese, uh, but with a kind of olive branch. We're not looking for trouble. We're not well, implicit. We're not going to back the Russians, but you, the Canadians and us should have the kind of friendship we used to have. The Canadians immediately understood who they were talking to. And it wasn't Canadians. They were talking to the Americans mm -hmm. because if you're the Russian, you're, you're China and you look at what the U S has done to Russia and you remember that this is your biggest customer. Really, what you want to say is, don't shoot, Kamarad. Yes. Okay. And so the whole world is changing its dynamic now. Let's start with the Chinese view about what's going on. Uh, when the war first started, they were really excited because they had always seen this as a potential template. You know, the, the Russians conquer Ukraine quickly, the world sucks it up, and Ukraine ceases to exist. The Russians absorb it, uh, the Russians pay no real diplomatic or economic price, and we go back to a multipolar world in which the Russians are bigger and everyone has just decided to uh, accept the done deal and move on. <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. Uh, so, number one, uh, Ukraine, while they're massively overperforming, has really only been preparing for this war for eight years and did not have a lot of financial resources to do so. Taiwan has been preparing for war with China for 75 years, and they are a wealthy country, and there is not a flat land border between China and Taiwan. It's an ocean. So there's always going to be a much higher level of casualties and a much level higher level of difficulty. And now the, uh, the Chinese know that. Uh, two, the sanctions. Uh, I gotta admit, I'm really surprised that the world came together, especially Europe, in the way that it did so quickly. If those sanctions were put against China, it would destroy the regime. Say what you will about the Russian economy, but it is a large net exporter of energy, foodstuffs, and the stuff that is necessary to grow foodstuffs. The Chinese are huge importers of all of those things. So the same exact sanctions put against China would destroy the place in less than a couple of months. But I think the one issue that has terrified the Chinese the most is that uh, the, the boycotts, everybody's left Russia 
And that is the development model for China. They need that for the market access. They need for the, that for the technological transfer. If they didn't have foreign corporations operating, you know, they'd be dead. And the most horrifying part is that consumers, individual people, have been able to pressure companies to leave Russia. Uh, the Chinese don't even admit that that's a force in the world, individuals. Uh, so everything that they thought they knew... Everything that they thought was a base assumption that was fine has been ripped apart in the last six weeks, and they now have to start from scratch. Okay. Uh, the Chinese, the Russian subs are fairly quiet, not as quiet as the American subs. And while they're, they do have a lot of them, most of them are not ballistic missile capable. Okay. Uh, also, uh, the Russian fleet is split into four. There's a Pacific fleet, a Baltic fleet, a uh, Black Sea fleet, and an Arctic fleet. So it's not like these are all in one place that they can sail together and do a giant armored punch. Um, and it's very easy to monitor everything that is coming out of the Black Sea because it has to go through the Bosphorus, everything that comes out of the Baltic because it has to go through the Danish Straits, and everything that comes out of um, Murmansk on the Arctic because there, there's a buoy line in the North Atlantic. So those three components of the fleets... I don't suggest that they're no challenge whatsoever, but it's really easy to have a force multiplier because of the geography. Uh, the Pacific fleet is different because there's a trench right off that they can drop down into, drop below the thermocline, and then maybe be undetected. But the United States has been tracking them there for 60 years, and they're pretty good at it. So I'm not too worried about that. Uh, China has to get through the first island chain. And so no matter where the Chinese sail, they have to go through a strait that's monitored uh, visually and with sonar. Uh, so I don't mean to suggest that there's no military threat there at all, but it's a very manageable one. And it's impossible for the Chinese and the Russians to coordinate just because of the geography. Uh, let's move to Ukraine. When the uh, Russians failed to take Kiev in the first week. They realized that this wasn't going to be an easy war and they needed to go back to one of their old mo old school plans that they did in, in uh, excuse me, World War II, but then resurrected for Grozny and then polished in Aleppo. And that is a complete obliteration of all civilian infrastructure. The idea being if you destroy the capacity of people to live in a place, they will naturally split themselves into two groups. One becomes refugees, and they leave, and so you don't have to worry about them. And the other become fighters, and so anyone who stays, you can shoot on sight. And we're seeing that being carried out in Mariupol right now, where the Russians don't just have their better troops. They've also brought in the Wagner Group uh, and mercenaries from Syria and the Chechens, and they're literally going block to block, shooting anyone who happens to be left. We know that it's already killed at least 50,000. It's probably closer to 100. And they're just going to go until there's no one left. And that is now the strategy for each and every Ukrainian city. Now, that is horrific. From an amoral point of view, it's a reasonable war plan when your goal is not necessarily to take the territory, but to get past the territory to get to what you really want. The Russians are trying to plug the gaps in the mountains and between the mountains and the seas that have always been the invasion corridors. And there's two of those corridors on the other side of Ukraine. One that goes southwest into Romania and one that goes uh, northwest into Poland. That's what they're ultimately after here. And if they don't have to occupy a population in Ukraine, that actually makes their long-term job easier if they can win the war. Here's the problem from the American point of view. You guys remember that 40-mile convoy? in the first week of the war that was going down from Belarus to Kiev. 
Well, it stalled out in a day because they forgot to bring fuel trucks. And two days later, the soldiers had to walk back to Belarus because they had run out of food. Now, American defense planners looked at that and got really excited. They're like, oh, wow, the Russians aren't as tough as we thought. We can totally take them in a war. And then everyone had a nap and thought about it for a while. They're like, holy crap, the Russians are not all that. We can totally take them in a war. Since we know that the Russians' intention is not to stop in Ukraine and is to go into multiple NATO countries, we know that that fight between American and Russian forces is destined to happen. And we now know how it will end. The Russians will be obliterated and they'll be faced with a simple choice, a strategic retreat across the entire line of contact all the way back to Russia, maybe even further, or escalate to involve nukes. Since the Russians see this as an existential crisis, that's a fight we have to prevent. And so the United States, specifically NATO in general, is sending any weapon system that we possibly can that can be carried or put in a truck. Nothing that requires on-site training, nothing that requires a supply chain that involves Americans because then you have an American defense envelope, nothing that requires American troops on the ground, but everything else we're sending in because if we can't kill Russia in Ukraine, nukes come into play. Uh, countries okay. that are closer to Europe, obviously, even if this war doesn't go nuclear, if you're Poland and you're Romanian, you know ultimately the Russians are coming for you, that changes your math and that changes the risks you're willing to take. And if you border Poland or Romania, same general thing. Also, the Central European countries have a lot of equipment that dates back to the Soviet period that the Ukrainians know how to work. So you don't have to worry nearly as much about that logistical supply line. The concern is going to be fuel. Ukraine used to get all of their fuel from Russia. And now we're in a situation where if you're going to supply them with something like a helicopter, that takes a lot of fuel. And so there are going to be trucks that have to cross and there has to be supply chains going back and forth. Uh, luckily, a fuel truck doesn't necessarily require a NATO driver. You can just turn that over to Ukraine. But I totally agree that we are we are moving into a gray area here bit by bit by bit. Uh, the systems that the Americans are providing are upgraded systems of the things that the Ukrainians already know. So, for example, um, when we went from javelins to stingers, not a big leap in terms of training. When we went from javelins to switchblades, same general thing. And once you can operate a switchblade, you can operate a switchblade uh, B, which is the one with the bigger warhead. So bit by bit by bit, we're moving up. Uh, the, uh, the opportunity slash concern for the next stage that the Americans are considering are Predator and Reaper drones. That requires a little bit more maintenance because they're not fire and forget. They actually come back and have to land. But... If we can get predators and reapers into the Ukrainians' hands, they can blow up the Kirk, the Kerch Strait bridge, and then all of a sudden, the Crimea is completely cut off. And from a war point of view, that would be fantastic because most of the gains the Russians have been made have been out of Crimea. Uh, we're in war. There are risks. Yeah. Uh, Keeping the war in Ukraine is the best way the U.S. has right now to manage that risk. I don't mean to suggest it's perfect. There's no negotiation with the Putin government right. on this. Uh, the Russians, the Russians, the government and the people see getting control of those gateways as an existential threat. And they know because of their advanced uh, decrepitude in their demographic structure that this is their last chance. 
they don't do it now, they, it won't happen. And then the next time there's a real war, the Russians will be unmoored in the Eurasian hordelands and they will have nowhere to hide and nothing, nowhere to regroup. Uh, there's no defensive position east of the Polish and the Bessarabian gaps. And the Russians would be completely destroyed in the next war. That's why they're doing it now. They are not interested in talking. Any talk of negotiations is just fluff to distract from the fact that they are in the first stage of a war that is meant to obliterate two countries and occupy all or, four, all or more of five more. Yeah, I would argue that there's nobody in the West who's doing the appeasement right now. There's definitely levels of commitment that are different. Um, and I think we're only a few weeks away from either the Europeans, number one, putting a spine in Germany and cutting off the energy exports, or number two, the Ukrainians just saying screw it and blowing up the pipelines themselves. Because right now, you know, the Russians are getting almost a billion dollars a day of income from their sales to Europe, and that is not a tenable situation, uh, especially considering what is at stake here for the rest of the world. Hey everyone, hello from Colorado where it is spring, it's going to be 75 degrees today, and then in three days we're going to get two inches of snow because mountains. Today I wanted to talk about Ukraine from an economic point of view. Now, all the strategic issue that has been in most of my updates stands. The Russians still need to plug those geographic gateways that allow access to their territory, so they still need to get all of Ukraine and then continue on. And the Russian population is still dying out, and this is their last chance to do so. All of that's true, all of that stands. But there's an economic issue underlying it that is worth exploring because it means that the Russians are going to be a little bit more brutal than they would otherwise need to be. Ukraine, in many ways, is like the American Midwest. It has a big river going through its most productive territory. So in the United States, that's the Mississippi, allows for all of the grain and soy producing states to export their stuff at low cost out to New Orleans. In, um, in Ukraine, it's the Dnieper. Uh, it serves the same purpose. Everything goes down the river and is ultimately repackaged at Odessa for shipment to the wider world. That means that from a, a, an American economic point of view, Ukraine makes sense. Uh, for Russia, though, it doesn't work that way. I've got this weird thing of hair right here. That For Russia, it doesn't work that way. Uh, Russia only has one river that flows south. That is the Volga, and it dead ends in the Caspian Sea, which is a landlocked lake. The north-flowing rivers, the Ob, for example, uh, have a different problem. Uh, one, they flow to the Arctic, and no one lives there, so any sort of shipment is very roundabout. Two, in winter, the rivers flow from the mouth to the source rather than the other way around. And when your river is flowing into ice, it breaks up the ice, it pushes the ice ahead of it until there's too much ice, and then the ice gets, by its mere weight, gets pushed down to the river bed and it forms an ice dam. Ice dams can last a long time and you get massive floods as the river overflows its banks and it does this in Russia every fall moving into winter, all winter long, and then especially in the spring melt, because then it melts from the source to the mouth instead of the other way around, and the water has nowhere to go. So most of the floodplains in most of the world are used for agriculture. In Russia, not necessarily because it's a death trap. Uh, there's actually a bit of a competition among the folks in the Russian military about who gets to go out and use 500-pound bombs on the ice dams to try to free up the rivers. Now, 
What this means in the terms of the Russian Empire, and you do need to think of Russia as an empire, it expands, it expands, expands until it hits those gateways, and all the countries that it expands through are occupied peoples. That's, that's an empire. That's not a republic. That's not a democracy. It means that Russia knows that its internal distribution is crap, and Russia knows it can't sell any excess production to the wider world because it's hard to get it out. But Ukraine can. Ukraine is the most productive land in the Russian sphere of influence. They have huge agricultural surpluses, a fair number of metals, some coal, uh, other chemicals, and it can all get out easily. And once it's to the Black Sea, it can go to Turkey or through the Turkish Straits to Europe and the wider world. For Russia, it's never been that easy. So Ukraine has always been a territory that the Russians have grabbed onto very tightly. And now that Ukraine is making a reasonable go at being independent and maybe even doing well in the war, the Russians feel they have to destroy all of that. So the civilian infrastructure obliteration strategy that the Russians started about six weeks ago is, is continuing. Uh, we know that what happened in Bucha with the atrocities there have been replicated in at least 70 places and other places that the Russians occupy. They're in the process of doing that in Mirapol right now. <sighs> the infrastructure is going to go. Because if the infrastructure goes, then a modern industrialized society can't exist. And ultimately, that is like a secondary goal for the Russians compared to the security stuff. But it's very, very much front of mind. Okay, that's everything for me. Until next time. Hey everyone, Peter Zion here coming to you from San Diego where it's of course a criminally beautiful day so I have to spend it all inside. Anywho, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about how the Russians are doing during this war. Uh, it's, it's not going great for them. The Ukrainians seem to be more nimble, have better logistics, or better able to absorb tech. And that's that last piece that reminds me of other things that have happened in Russian history. Uh, we're seeing the Ukrainians adapting to new technical changes, especially when it comes to drone warfare and better intelligence, in a way the Russians just seem incapable of, of mirroring um, or even adapting to to this point. That still doesn't change my overall assessment that ultimately the Russians are going to overwhelm the Ukrainians. Uh, we're now involved in an artillery duel in Ukraine's east and it's open and it's flat and there's nowhere to hide and stingers are of less use and this is the sort of war that the Russians actually train for and excel at. I don't think it's going to be a great couple of weeks for the Ukrainians moving forward, especially into May. But the seeming technical ineptitude of the Russian forces is more than a minor issue. It's also reflected in Russian history. So back in 1853 to 56, we had something called the Crimean War. And the specifics of how it got set up are not really the big deal here. Uh, the point is that we had some early industrializers, most notably the Brits and the French, who were going to war with a technically lagging power, the Russians, in Crimea. New things were introduced. Artillery, for example. Uh, the French and the Brits also were producing sufficient steel in mass that they had metal ships versus the Russians' wooden ones. Uh, so all that steel allowed the uh, invading forces to have lots and lots of long-range rifles versus the muskets of the Russians. The French and the Brits also had things like early medical industrial technologies that allowed them to have sanitary hospitals so that fewer of their troops would, troops would die. 
At the end of the war, it was basically seen as a humi humiliation of the Russians. Uh, they were defeated at almost every turn. Uh, they couldn't even build railways to their own places, whereas the Brits and the French, because of their command of things like steel, could. And so eventually we had the French and the Brits scooting around on rail within Russian territory faster than the Russians could. Uh, humiliating defeat. And it sparked a uh, one of those on-again, off-again modernization pushes after the war that we see in Russia from time to time. Now, the point of all of this is that the Russians always are on the back foot when it comes to technology. And sometimes they can rally, like in World War II or against Napoleon, and sometimes they can't, like the Crimean War. But they will never stop unless they have to, unless they're forced to. In the Crimean War, the war finally ended because the Russians literally couldn't get troops to the front fast enough to make a difference. And at the end of the day, they lost a half a million soldiers. We're nowhere close to that with this today's conflict. The Russians see this as an existential crisis and no matter how many casualties they take, they will fight until they can't. So we are only in the very opening act of this conflict. We have a long way to go regardless of whether the Ukrainians can hold the line or not. This is going to last months, probably years. Intelligence is everything. We had bad intelligence three, four months before. We never imagined that he was planning this. Um, we were sort of ready with contingency plans, but hadn't really thought it through. Uh, once we saw him massing his forces, we were then geniuses because we knew who was attacking. But, you know, every war begins with intelligence failures. You know, the idea that you're going to know what the other side is doing when he's trying more than anything to confuse you, uh, you sometimes get it right, um, especially if you depend on sources because they lie all the time. Mm. And that's a good job. <laughs> um, so, he certainly made a mistake. Putin made a mistake on not understanding the structure of the Ukrainian military. The Ukrainian military was heavily trained by NATO. There was an understanding with NATO on joint training. So this is not an untrained mob. Second, they were fairly decently. And third, and this was, I think, his basic failure, he had cut the size of the army you know, before to get it down to something that could be managed. He evaded with that army and he had no reserve. He cut the when size got, of, the, of the Russian army invading, correct? Sure. Well, no, the Russian army used to be vast under the Soviets. It was a tremendous strain on the economy. Mm. And everybody was cutting the size of the military because there was equipment, miracle uh, stuff. There really was. It's important. And what he cut it down to was basically something you'd have a single operation the size of Ukraine, but don't get into trouble. Okay. And his problem was that he didn't build a reserve in. He didn't go in with the preparation, with the expectation that it would go wrong. Yeah. Now, right. wars always go wrong, but he doesn't have that. So he kidded himself into believing that what he had was enough. I think he had a pretty good grasp of what the Ukrainian army could do. Okay. But it was the decision to 
pare the army down to the point where if something failed, there was no plan B. Propaganda is not intelligence. Okay. Propaganda is the oldest thing in the book. And we just happen to have the internet now. But the Russians were very great at what they called agitprop, agitation and propaganda. Okay. And they would feed the system with, during the Depression, the massive Soviet propaganda going on. And they would try to create mischief in the United States, and they, they succeeded. This is not intelligence. Okay. It doesn't do any harm, because in the history of this, very rarely does agitprop work well enough to change the pattern that you're on. Okay. But the people who get funded to do it in each country demand great bucks to be able to do this sure. on this part of the world. So let's not confuse whatever the Russians did with an election. Okay. It doesn't change the throw weight of American missiles. And that's right. what we're about. The intelligence issue was much greater, but I think we have to go back to the problem the Russians were trying to solve, which people don't talk about. Sure. The Russians lost their strategic defenses with the fall of the Soviet Union. Russia had been attacked by the Germans once, uh, 27 million dead. Stunning. Yeah. Attacked again in response to their own attack back in World War I. Napoleon went to Moscow. Mm. So the Turks had attacked from the south. So Russia is a country steeled to attack. They expect to be attacked. They have saved themselves historically by strategic death. Strategic death. Yeah, death. The distance it takes to get to Moscow. So, for example, okay. if you start an attack in June, all right, yeah. you'll get to Moscow in the middle of winter, whether right. you're Napoleon or Hitler. Yeah. And then you lose. Sure. They lost that. The distance between Highway M3 in northern Ukraine and Moscow is 260 miles. Okay. That is their whole depth. They believe that the attack that will come at them will be unexpected. They never expected Napoleon to come in. Yeah. Okay. So the idea that, well, nobody plans to attack you doesn't work. So around their periphery, they had lost all their depth. Okay. So the past two years, they've been engaged in an operation to rebuild. The first step was Belarus. Belarus operate, you know, is blocks the North European plane, the access point to Russia. And that was the first one they secured. And they didn't secure it by invading. They secured it by there was an election that Lukashenko may or may not have lost. Okay. And their agitprop comes in as interesting. Okay. And what they did was stabilize the government and essentially took control of the government. So that right now Belarus is an area they control. Yeah. The second place they addressed was the South Caucasus. This is where attacks from the Turks come from. And you say, don't, what are you worried about Turks? They worry about it. Uh, and during the, there was a war there and the Russians negotiated a peace and sent them peacekeepers. And those peacekeepers stay there. Now that they had their Southern flank. Okay. In Kazakhstan, the largest country in Central Asia, there was a massive uprising 
Again, that could be agitprop. Okay. Okay. And the Russians came in as peacekeepers and coincidentally arrested the head of intelligence, a guy called Basimov, and sort of took control. And this is how they've done it. So first, this is not new. This was going on for two years. And intelligence, if you will, I knew it. I mean, anybody wanted to see it. The Russians had to do this. This was an imperative. They were doing it. And now the last biggest and most important piece had to be handled. Ukraine. Now, in every other case, they did what I call soft coups. Hmm. Uh, they took control, but not with troops or anything else, just manipulating the situation, taking advantage of it, having support. They couldn't find a way to do it in Ukraine. Hmm. Ukraine didn't give them that opening. Um, and that's where Agitprop fails. They tried to convince the public there that the government consisted of Nazis. Right. Uh, yeah. The laughter was unbelievable. Agitprop sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work. Hmm. And they decided that Ukraine to the Carpathian Mountains had to be theirs. Okay. If I were them, I'd be doing the same thing. Because that's the strategic depth that you talked about, right? And Ukraine is that key piece that provides that's, the that's life and death. That's life and death. Yeah. That's okay. life and death for Russia. Because if Hitler attacked from where they are now, they would have lost the war. Same with Napoleon. Exactly. Yeah. They need this. Okay. Yeah. On the other side, we don't want them to have it because then they're butting up on NATO. And last time they were there, they tried in various ways to take control of Europe. Right. So we have two very reasonable imperatives that collide. The Russian imperative, I've got to have Ukraine. The Western imperative, German and everyone else is no way in hell. Right. And these are where war starts. George, can I ask you, is... Like I understand if, if you're Vladimir Putin and you're looking at your country's history, yeah, as you said, you have to do this. You've lost your country's buffer, your country's border, right? Um, Belarus, the, the South Caucasus, Kazakhstan, now Ukraine. Is that fear today really that founded, though? Was Russia at risk of a hot war? Do you no. think so? No. Russia wasn't at risk of a hot war in 1935. It arrived in 1941. Okay, okay so, good point. The problem of Europe is you have powerful technical countries that are very small and very insecure. And the history of Europe is in war because it is so fast and easy to mobilize mm. that you don't get the kind of warning. But I mean, the same with us. Pearl Harbor comes. Right. We didn't think that's where they would strike. And we're 10 fires before they didn't think they would strike. Right. So the framework of war is inherently, we don't give you a heads up. Of course. And therefore, you can convince yourself that peace. So a good statesman says, I'm going to do worst case. Yeah, of course, which is, I guess, the lesson that the United States learned at Pearl Harbor, right? They learned the dangers of isolationism the hard way. And it became the tall poppy and everybody wants to cut you down. And we went so far into it that we almost drowned in, right. in the prep being prepared. So you yes. have to have exactly the right mixture. 